You're listening to Calvary La Habra's podcast. For more information, visit us at calvarylh.com. Thanks for listening. Well, let's turn our Bibles over to the book of Hebrews. And we're going to be in chapter 12. For you that are online as well, we'd like to welcome you. We that are here and out in the tent, let's welcome them. It's always good to... You know, and, and uh, see, the people that are here, we've already invited our friends. Our, our chance to invite is somewhat limited because we're here and everybody's paying attention to me. But you in your home, you can send a link to a friend. Uh, you can just encourage them, hey, check out this Bible study. I think it's very uh, appropriate for believer and non-believer alike. A lot of insight here that I think will help us focus on Jesus, and that's what it's uh, all about. And if you're watching online as well and you're not a Christian, or you're here and you're not a Christian... Um, welcome, wel- welcome, right? By the way, we welcome. That's what it's all about. And understand that, that if somebody invited you or sent you the link and you're like tuning in and you're not a Christian, like what is going on, especially with the sound system at that church, but you're tripping out about all this, understand that somebody loved you enough to pray for you, they loved you enough to invite you, and they, they love Jesus enough because he's changed their life in such a way where they're like, I want you to experience this uh, as well. So really pay attention. God's got a plan for you as much as he has a plan for everyone that he's already redeemed uh, at this time and age. So we're currently working our way through uh, Hebrews chapter 12. So again, having our Bibles there, we're going to pick up in verse 18. And the writer here is picturing the Christian life as a race. The recipients of the letter are Jewish believers who are getting weary. They are wanting to give up on their Christianity. And so in order to encourage them to not give up and to keep moving forward, he gives this illustration of the Christian life being likened to a long-distance race. Following Christ is like a lifelong marathon. How many of you guys know it's not just a sprint? In order to effectively run and finish the race that God has set out for each one of us, there's a few things we've got to look at. We noted this in, in verse 1. He talks about we've got to look around, and as we do, we are looking at what he outlined in chapter 11, where there we have 17 examples of patriarchs in the Old Testament who finished their, 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 their race, and they become a, a, a testimony of persevering faith. That it's always taken persevering faith to follow God in a fallen world. And then we need to look at ourselves. And part of that was how we need to lay aside anything that would trip us up from running this race. Anything that would bog us down or hinder us from finishing the race that the Lord has set before us. And the same you know, is true with any sin that so easily entangles us. So... Look at, look at, look around, look at yourself, and then look at, at the course. Run the race that is set before us. Run the, the path that God has given you. God has mapped out a specific course for you, a specific course for me. I'm not to run your course, you're not to run my course. And we don't pick our course, that's the idea. God does. And he's given us his word to serve as our map, as our compass, as our guidebook. And then, most importantly, verse 2 we need to be looking unto Jesus. Why? Because he's the author of our faith. He's the originator of our faith. He paid for our entrance fee 
and, and, and he's the one who bought us. He redeemed us with his blood. So pay for the one who, who entered you into this race with his own blood and, and keep your eyes on the one, you know, who's given us the faith to be in the race and to run the race and to finish the race. And then fifthly, look to God's word. One of the reasons these people were getting ready to throw in the towel on their faith, on Christianity, on Jesus, is the same reason that many people throw in the towel. It's because they have forgotten God's word. Especially in verse 5, the exhortations, the redirects from God in his word, which speak to us as sons. Then the author begins to speak to this church like a training coach. Verse 12, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. He's like, straighten up. Get those hands up. Get those feet up. The idea is get back to running the race, the map that God has set out before you. Get back to running the race just like you did when you first began to run the race. Get back to following Jesus when, just, just like you did when you first fell in love with Jesus. And then verse 13, make straight paths for your feet so what is lame may not be dislocated but rather healed. He's talking about realigning your life up with the path that God has set before you. Living a life of obedience. And how that has a healing effect on even those struggling Christians around us. The, the, the lame that they might not be dislocated, but rather healed. A lot of scholars believe it speaks to just that. And then lastly, pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And we talked about a changed life speaks loudly. A committed life, a holy life speaks loudly. It proclaims loudly that Jesus is alive to, to other believers. It proclaims loudly that Jesus is alive to those that have yet to give their life to him. So one thing that we see in this chapter is that this spiritual marathon is not easy. It hurts at times. We get blisters at times, spiritual blisters or spiritual chin splints. We hit spiritual walls. Thus we need spiritual encouragement from those that have run the race before us. We need encouragement from the coaches, from one another from the pace setters, from the Lord himself. We need to stay the course. But as we run this race, there are other voices, not just the voice of our training coach, the one that enlisted us, Jesus, not just the voices of others around us modeling what it's like to run in victory, for victory, not just the voices of those as we read about those others who have finished their course or have observed others who have already died but have finished their course. But there's voices that don't want us on this course. There's voices that want, us, want to discourage us and say, you don't need to be in that, that whole Christian thing. You don't need to be running and, and serving and following Jesus. Those friends maybe or relatives or just acquaintances in the workplace that would like to discourage us or distract us. They do not want us following Christ. They're yelling. 
But they're like, get off of that path and join our path. Imagine a marathon runner. Just put yourself in that arena for a second. And, and, and someone has been running for quite a long time. And they're, they're a bit exhausted. They're tired. But mentally, things are just starting to, the, the circumstances are to pl- beginning to play on their mind. And they, they run past some family members. And I've done this with my wife in many races where we're like, yeah, Lori, go for it. Yeah. And it just picks her up. But imagine what it would be like if they ran past a, a family member, someone they loved, someone they really respected, and they're like, you stink. What are you doing? Get off this course. You're wasting your time. You know, and they're just holding up a bunch of Coronas or something, saying, come on, come on over here and follow me. You don't need to be, you know, all this sacrifice, all this wasted time. Imagine how discouraging that would be to a marathon runner. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Because that's exactly what was happening to these Christians. Their estranged relatives and friends and synagogue leaders were getting down on them for leaving the Jewish faith. The Romans were just like completely persecuting them. So in this closing section of chapter 12, the author addresses this problem... And he does so by contrasting where his people have come from as Jews, Judaism, to where they currently are in Christ and to where that leads them as they continue to follow Christ. And he begins to talk about the giving of the law at Mount Sinai and the terrifying circumstances that surrounded the giving of the law. And then he will contrast that Mount Sinai experience where Moses gave the law and what happened there to Mount Zion which speaks of the life and the freedom under grace, the life that we have in Christ. So let's look at verse 18 together. For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that may and that burned with fire and to blackness and darkness and tempest. And the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore, for they could not endure what was commanded. And if so, and if so much as a beast even touched that mountain, it would be stoned or shot with an arrow. So terrifying was the sight that Moses said himself, I'm exceedingly afraid. And, and I'm trembling. So the author takes them back, takes us back to Exodus chapter 19. It's three months now since they have left Egypt, since they've been freed up from their bondage, and, and two and a half million people have left Egypt now, and they've just been out there for about three months. And God says something to Moses there in Exodus chapter 19, and he says, first of all, go to the people and consecrate them. I want you to set them apart unto me and for my purpose. And so the way that he would have them do that is that ceremonially, just as a symbol gesture that we're being cleansed before God, have them wash all of their clothes. Have all of the married folk abstain from sexual relations for three days. Just a a symbolic way of saying, man, 
no to my flesh, the appetites of my flesh, and we need to be just set apart unto God. He's a holy, he's a righteous God. They were called to the base of Mount Sinai. But they were told that nobody could touch that mountain. No man, nor peace. Or they would die. A man or beast, if they touched the mountain, they would die. And, and that stage was set, and it remained that way for those three days. Exodus 19.16 says, that when it came to pass on the third day in the morning, that there were thunderings and lightnings, and a thick cloud was up on the mountain. And the sound of the trumpet was very loud, so that all the people who were in the camp, they trembled. In Deuteronomy 20, or 33, verse 2, it talks about this, and it tells us that this was accompanied by myriads of hundreds of thousands of angels hovering invisibly around and over Mount Sinai. Most likely, they were the ones that were blasting the trumpets. Then in Exodus 19... 18 through 20, it says that Mount Sinai became completely engulfed in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked greatly. And then when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and and became louder and louder, Moses spoke up and God answered him by voice. And the Lord came down upon the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. Imagine what that would have been like. I don't know about you if, if you've ever been in some like intense situation where you've just been so radically gripped with fear you couldn't even speak. I always remember here, I, I, I had a few of those personal situations, surfing and being in some situations maybe with my extreme sport research that... Um, I, I've, I've been freaked out, thought I was going to die. But as far as with a big group, I, I just I can go back to one particular event at this church. And that is when we had a, a, a good-sized earthquake here in the epicenter of that earthquake was somewhere around our parking lot, I believe. And this is back in the day where you could pack in rooms. And our mini chapel had, I think, about 400 people in it. Uh, it was a, a missions night we were having. And, and without getting into all of the details... I was standing in the back of the room, and I just looked and I went, why is the right side of the stage about a foot taller now than the left side of the stage? And as it rolled through, it not only rolled through the cement and it rolled through the structure of our building, but it rolled through people's hearts. And, and, and the people who could get a scream out, they got, they got, I heard men screaming, by the way, as well, oh, you know, get the kids, run for the doors. It's amazing who you see running for the doors, by the way. And I just, I just remember that just watching and going, Lord, don't let the roof come down. That's all I said. Just don't let. And I, ran, I was running forward to grab the mic because everybody on the stage was gone. And I just I grabbed the mic and I just started praying. But I, I remember the, just the, the intensity, just the collective intensity that comes from human beings when you're packed together. Imagine having two and a half million people. And you were so serious. You know God is so like in this. You, like, you, you, you washed your clothes. You just did. If you're married, you're like, honey, no, not for three days. You got your family. You, you started huddling around that mountaintop. And then all of a sudden, the ground starts shaking. The sky blackens in just a 
a deep, deep darkness, thunders, deep, deep thunders, and, and lightning, flashes of lightning, and, and, and just this countless angels blasting trumpets, announcing God. He's, he's about to come in your midst. It's louder and louder. And then Moses yells out to God in the midst of all of this. And then God answers him with like a voice of, of thunder. People were visibly shaken up as they faced the holiness, as they faced the majesty of God. Yes, this absolutely displayed the, the, the holiness and the power and the majesty of God. But it also showed the unapproachableness of God and the limitations of the law, that, that covenant that was all about to be established. These Hebrews would look back and they would see God's holiness. And as they would think about God's holiness and think about what was given, it was also all of this was going to happen, the law being given as a result of their sinfulness. When you bring the law into the equation, they knew that the law was limited. They knew that the law had no power to over or, or to forgive them of their sin. All of this was just a, a sobering picture as a Hebrew who was now converted is, is being reminded to look back and to really consider what they're running back to when they leave Jesus and go back to Judaism, the Old Covenant. In contrast to the Old Covenant, he's going to turn now their focus to the New Covenant, verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator, of the new covenant and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks of better things than of Abel. So Christians, you've, you, you've come to a different mountain. A different mountain where something very different has taken place. We're talking about a cross. Mount Zion represents that, that cross and the new covenant that was established in the blood of Jesus. It speaks of the new life, of freedom that we have under grace. The new life we have in Christ that begins the moment that we are born again and adopted into the family of God. A new life that includes eternal life. As he says here, to the heavenly Jerusalem. Philippians 3.20, but our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 22 again, to an innumerable company of angels. Just lots of angels in heaven. Revelation 5, 11 through 12, looking at the throne, John saw 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. We're just talking about a mass of angels singing and saying with a loud voice to Jesus. Talk about a worship service. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy are you, Jesus, who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. 
Now, you know, that, that's the cry of a heart that gets it right with Jesus, where they really see him for who he is. You don't have to wait to get to heaven to, like, sing that song or have that reality rest in your heart. He's worthy, amen? amen. To receive power, riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. All the patriarchs who were looking for heaven by faith and have now died are there. All of our loved ones who have died in faith are there. Jesus is there. We had a beautiful memorial service for Hope Dominguez yesterday. And, and yeah, lots of tears. Lots of tears. But many of those tears are tears of joy. I was, I was so blessed to be invited into St. Jude. St. Jude was closed for weeks and months. And, and just right when she was passing, the doors were opened up to family and and, and as she was there, I was able to go up to this woman who's a patriarch or a matriarch in my life of faith. One who took me in when I was 12 years old and my whole youth group, she just brought us into her house and they loved on us. And, 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 and I've seen her faith on display for 45 years plus. I mean, it's just a crazy thing. And to be able to go and she's in her final hours and be able to just kiss her on her forehead and hug her and even though she's, she's not all alert and whatnot, and just thank her and, 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 and just weep on her. And, and as my tears are falling on her face, I'm saying, hey, man, and just, I don't know when, but will you give my dad a hug? I, just tell him I really miss him. This is, these are the tears of joy. These are the tears of hope. These are the tears of promise. These are the tears we wouldn't have if there wasn't that mountain, Mount Zion and the new covenant and the freedom that we have and the eternity that we have because of what Jesus accomplished on that cross. When we come to Mount Zion, we come to that new covenant, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. The family of God. The family of God. Jesus is the firstborn in, in God's family. But by virtue of our union with him through spiritual birth, through spiritual regeneration, we are, as Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 16, joint heirs, where it says the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit as believers that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. You know, I just I think about this. What if you were an error, error, an heir of, of I don't know, Bill Gates? You might carry yourself a little bit differently down here. Yeah, especially as he gets older. Yeah, you're going to carry yourself a little because you see, I'm an heir of Bill Gates. I'm I'm in line to receive all of this inheritance. Well, you can have the inheritance of Bill Gates. I'll take the inheritance of Jesus Christ. I'll, I'll take. What moth and rust cannot destroy, where thieves can never take. I'll take that which never ends over what is temporary and will only fulfill you for just a short time. And it's all going to burn, by the way. That's where the General Assembly is, and they got it right. As firstborn kids, our names are registered. They're written in heaven in the book of life. Amen? We gotta, we, there's a reservation there where our names are there. It's a good thing. 
I wish my name was like even on a, a, a reservation of just a restaurant in these towns these days. They don't do that anymore, though. 1 Peter 1, 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy, he has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled, and does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, Lance, and for you. With every conversion, maybe today another one, the family of God grows down here on earth. With every death of a believer, the family of God grows. That number grows in heaven. It's just a crazy thing to think through. We are an expanding assembly of firstborn sons and daughters. We also come to God, verse 23. You have come to God, the judge of all men. Now, both, both covenants are subject to the judicial role of God. God is always a judge. Both covenants are subject to him and his judicial role. The author had already told them in in chapter 4, verse 13, that nothing in all of creation is hidden from God's sight, this judge. Everything it says there is uncovered and laid before, bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And you know, you really live a day with that conviction, you'll have a probably a different day. <laughs> everything I'm going to you know, think about today, everything I'm going to say today, everything I'm going to do today, God is completely in the know. He sees that. But you see, the difference now is, We don't need to come to God shaking in our boots like we saw pictured there with Old Testament under the Old Covenant or the Old Covenant about to be established saints, at least the giving of the law. We don't need to come to God like they did at Mount Sinai. (laughs) You touch the mountain, you just put them, you're down. We're putting you down, (laughs) man or beast. There you could not even approach God. The law was powerless to make you righteous before God. So they lived in dread of the judgment of God. But coming to God under the new covenant, we we do not come in dread because Jesus has borne the judgment that we deserve. He's taken it upon himself on the cross. When we come to Mount Zion, we come to this new covenant, the new life of freedom under grace. But we also come, as it says here, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. That's a pretty heavy thing. What's that talking about? Well, that's a reference to all of the saints who at that time had died in faith and now are in heaven. Men like Abraham and and Moses and David and others, other righteous men who died centuries earlier. When saints died in the Old Testament, those that died in faith, those who had a right standing with God on the basis of the atonement that the Old Covenant provided, when they died before the cross, they went to a place that Jesus talked about in Luke chapter 16 called Abraham's bosom. And Abraham's bosom somewhere in the earth, in the, you know, buried, in the, hidden in the depths of the earth, is, is, is a place where there's a big gulf, and on one side is a place of torment, and on the other side, this place of Abraham's bosom was a place of comfort. The unrighteous, they would go to the place of torture. And there, 
you know, in, in that story that Jesus tells about that place of torture, we would look at that as hell, there is the only message we have from the place of torture. And it's this individual who had died and, and, and was not in right standing with God, and that's where he went. And there, the only thing he says is, would you please... Uh, Abraham, he cries out to Abraham, would you, I, would you please give me some water because I'm just like burning up over here. But would you warn my loved ones as well about this awful place of torture? And Abraham's like, hey, listen, if they're not going to listen to all of the prophets who are already warning them, they're not going to listen to me, though I come back from the dead. And that's true. But they're that place. It's interesting because during those three days following the burial of Jesus' body, he would actually visit this place. He would actually visit Abraham's bosom. Paul talks about it in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 8 and 10, when it says about Jesus, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive. He gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended. What does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. In Luke chapter 11, verse 38, some of the scribes and Pharisees came to Jesus and they said, Teacher, we want a sign from you. Just give us a sign. And Jesus said, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, but no sign is going to be given to you except the sign of the prophet Jonah. If you really want to understand who I am and the mission of why I came, I want you to think through the prophet Jonah. It's a sign of, of his life is a sign of, of my mission. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will, and he uses the messianic title for himself, the son of man, be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And as Paul would say there in Ephesians chapter 4, when Jesus was there, he led captivity captive. He led those who were in right standing with God, those who were in the place of comfort, Abraham's bosom, he led those captives free. He took the righteous in paradise, Abraham's bosom, to heaven. All of those righteous who died prior to the cross. They could not enter into in heaven until the ultimate sacrifice that paves the way into heaven was actually made. And that was Jesus giving his body on the cross. The writer of Hebrews talks about this in Hebrews 10, 14, where it says, For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. So, men like Abraham and Moses and David, others, these righteous men that died centuries ago, they waited for centuries for the perfection that we have received when we have trusted Christ. He's contrasting the two. Trying to win their hearts over. Stay with Christ. Look at what we've gained. Look at the superiority of Him and the benefits that have been extended from Him. 24 again. We come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Moses goes down as the mediator of the Old Covenant. In chapter 3, the author reminded them of how Jesus is better than Moses. Moses was commissioned by God, but 
Jesus was sent by God. <laughs> he is God. Moses was a great man, but he was merely a man. Jesus is the creator of all men and the savior of all men. Moses liberated a nation from Egypt. That's huge. It was cool. But Jesus, purging mankind of all of their sins, has liberated all of those that he has saved from hell, which is far superior. In chapter 9, the writer says, Look, under the old covenant, the high priest shed the blood of goats and, and calves, or on your behalf, for your behalf. But they, they knew that all of that had limitations. Their sin was never fully removed from their life. And there he says, guys, in the new covenant, Jesus shed his own blood, which completely removes your sin and cleanses your conscience. It was in that Last Supper setting in Mark's account in chapter 14, 22, as they were eating, Jesus took the bread, he blessed it, he broke it, he gave it to them, and he said, take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and all of them drank from it. And he said, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. And so Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling, as it says in verse 24 as well, that speaks better things than of Abel. In Genesis chapter 4, Adam and Eve, of course, had two sons, Cain and Abel. We know the story. Cain brought an offering of fruit of the ground of the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat, and the Lord accepted Abel's offering. But he did not respect Cain and his offering, and Cain, of course, was very angry. His, his countenance fell. God wasn't looking for something from the farm as far as vegetables and whatever else you, you raised. He was looking for an animal. That's what sacrifices would be based on. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, you can, you can make this right. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, listen, sin lies at the door. And its desire is for you, but you should rule over that. Make the right choice, bro. Sadly, Cain, because of his pride and self-righteous thinking, he rejected God's redirect. And he would end up murdering his brother Abel. So how does Jesus' blood of sprinkling speak better than, or better things than that of Abel's? Well, Abel's blood, it spoke, but it spoke from the earth and it cried for vengeance and justice. That's the idea. But Jesus' blood speaks from heaven and announces mercy and forgiveness. Amen? Abel's blood made Cain feel guilty, and rightly so, and, and drove him away from God in despair. But Jesus' blood frees us from guilt and has opened up that new way into the presence of God. With so much to gain from coming to Mount Zion, the new covenant, the new life of freedom under grace, you would be a fool to walk away and go back to the old. Galatians 4 1 says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty of the freedom by which Christ has made you free, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. And that might be a good word for people here or people watching online that, you know, 
you, you might have been raised as a religious person and it was all about the do's and the don'ts and the rules and all this hierarchy and all this structure and all this, here's the lane to live in, but it's the lane that man has set before you. And, 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 but, but you found Jesus somehow. And he's called you out of that. He's brought you out of that. And the freedom that you have now, you're driven now by his love, not the rules and regulations of man. You, you, the grace, the unmerited favor of God is what has won you over. And so now you're, you're coming to him because he loves you and he graces you. You're following him because he, he loves you and he graces you. You're waiting for his return because he loves you and he graces you. And all of the benefits that you've, you've experienced because he loves you and he's gracing you. <laughs> you know that, but then there's just... There's temptations. There's the lure of the enemy and the draw to maybe <coughs> go back to whatever it was Jesus has saved you from. The author says, don't do that. Don't go back to what you were entangled in. It's not worth it. Galatians 4.4, 4, he says, you have become estranged from Christ. Talking to believers again in the, the, the area of Galatia, the realm the, the region there, and, and they were having the same struggles. But he says, you have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt now to be justified by the law, you've fallen from grace. All kinds of warnings. Stay in there. Hang in there. Don't walk away from Jesus and His love and His, His grace. The freedom that, that He's given you. You know, this is not some religious experience, folks. It's just not. You might be, you know, making it that way, but as far as God's concerned, as far as what God is desiring to do with us, this is not a religious experience. It's not. It's not about the rules and the regulations. And all. It's about a loving, intimate relationship with His Son. Amen. Think about that. We've been adopted into the family of God. That's just an amazing thing. He's redeemed us. He's bought us. We need to stand fast in the liberties that he has given us and not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. I was recently talking to someone that was, did a good stint in prison. And they were so excited about the freedoms that they, they had. And they were telling about prison life a bit and whatnot. I was like, oh man, that, that's gnarly. And, oh yeah, but I ain't going back there. No, there's no way I'm going back to what, you know, like... Uh, the bondage of prison. I, I remember humorously, I, I read, I was remembering, I found the note, but it was a story, uh, a joke, but a, a story where a warden of a of Midwest prison, he sent around a note to all of his inmates asking for suggestions of what kind of party they recommended for the 25th anniversary of this particular prison. And overwhelmingly, they got back to him and they said, let's have an open house party. <laughs> <laughs> what have you been freed from? You would be a fool to run back to that which would entangle you or hold you down or keep you trapped. Imagine a person being set free from prison who spent most of their life in bondage to that prison. The day comes when they are set free and rather than moving out into freedom, they, they run back to prison to those cells and they say, lock me up. This is what these Hebrews were in danger of doing by turning back to the law and legalism and leading Christ. See then in verse 25, 
that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, but now has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of the things that were being shaken as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. You know, the writer of Hebrews, he started the letter in chapter 1, verse 1, by saying this, God, God who at various times and in various ways has spoken, but he's spoken in the past to the fathers by the prophets, but has in these last days spoken to us by his sons. And one of the various ways that God had spoken to the Old Testament saints in past times was what the writer is referring to here, even when he spoke to them at Mount Sinai, when God was speaking loud and clear with the smoke and the lightning and the flashes and the, 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 just the, the judgment that was aimed at sin and the voice that just spoke from all of that. And the Israelites, when they heard that, they were begging. They were begging like, we, no further word from you, God. Please stop this. And they continued to refuse God's word. They were, they, they, when they got to Kadesh Barnea, just beyond Mount Sinai, they would get to the, the border of Kadesh Barnea, the border of the land that God had promised them, the land that he said go inhabit, and they would dare refuse to obey God's word by not going in and inheriting the land. Fear, unbelief, held them and just gripped them. And we see much of their repeated disobedience through the 40 years of the wilderness wandering as well. So grievous was their disobedience that in Numbers chapter 14, God pronounced judgment in that everyone who was 20 years old and under there at Kadesh Barnea would die in the desert. So if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth. Much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven. If God shook things at Sinai and those who refused to hear were judged, how much more responsible are we today who have experienced the blessings of the new covenant at Mount Sinai? at Calvary, where the heavenly word through Christ has been spoken. This has been the writer's message all along. In chapter 2, verse 3, he warned, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? But now he has promised in verse 16, yet once more, I shake not only the earth, but also, also heaven. God's doing some shaking today, folks. God's doing some shaking today, folks. <laughs> I don't know where you woke up today. But I woke up and I say, Lord, I look around and you are speaking loud and clear on all ears. Why is God speaking the way he is today? Why is he speaking? 
It's indicating the removal of the things that are being shaken as of things that are made. This refers to things people are building their lives on rather than Jesus. Things that are not eternal. Things which cannot be shaken. Today, many people, including Christians, are are building their lives on things that can shake. God shaking things up so that those things that need to go from our life would actually be removed from our life. Pay attention to the shakings of God in your life. Say, look, what, what is it? Last week, we were, I was in a, in a Bible study with a few guys, and, and the whole focus was just, are we okay with the no of God? I mean, we pray sometimes, Lord, I, I, this, I, I see this, I'd like this, and we're like, Lord, please, and we're just waiting for the yes. Get, affirm it in my heart, and we give God that one option. Say yes. But what I was saying in, in the study was, in our discussion was, a mature Christian gets to a place where they're just excited with the no of God than they are with the yes of God. A mature Christian gets to a place where they, they see the same benefit in a no of God that they would see in a yes from God. And I think right now the Lord is shaking up every aspect of our life. The Lord's even shaking up relationships. I've been talking a lot about this. Or is this relationship that you want for me? Yes or no? As California is becoming what California is becoming, and everybody is talking about, I think we need to move California because taxes are too high, and they got their list and stuff. It, it, it isn't about what governors are doing in the land that i am got my ear towards. It's what God wants me to be in the land that I have my ear bent towards. Yes or no? I'm okay with God's yes. I'm okay with God's no. I believe that on the other side of that is his blessing. So he's going to shake things up in my life to get my attention. He, the one who shakes things up in my life or allows things to be shaken up in my life, wants my attention. He might be commanding my attention. The question is, am I okay with that? Well, The shaking quotation here was all about, like, we've got to become eternally minded. Get your focus on that stuff that will never be shaken. The shaking quotation is from Haggai 2.6 and refers to the time when the Lord shall return and and, and fill his house with his glory. We read about that in 2 Peter 3, verse 10, where the day of the Lord will come as like a thief. and The heavens will disappear with a roar and the elements will burn with fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Yeah, one day the, the, the Lord will speak in every galaxy with billions of stars. They'll, they'll hear his word and be shaken out of existence. Just a little word from God and it's done. And then whatever, he will recreate. Just he'll speak it into existence. Therefore, in verse 28, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken. <laughs> Amen? Let us have grace which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and with godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. As events, obviously, draw nearer to that time, 
we're going to see more shaking and more shaking and more shaking in the world. But as Christians, we can be confident because we are right now part of an unshakable kingdom. In, in the heart of God, He was saying to these Christians who were being tempted to walk away from His Son, understand what you're walking away from. Understand you're my kingdom kids. Understand what my Son has gone to prepare that place for you. Be eternally minded. There's nothing that we have. All of the things that we try to convince ourselves bring stability into our life. And maybe for a term, a, a set period of years or time, there's some stability to be found in marriage and family, in the home and in, in the businesses that we build and the careers that we form and shape and the relationships that we have. But do we all understand as well that all of that is temporal? Yeah. And that it's, it's, it's all just, it's, it's on shaky ground. It just is. But that which is eternal, which he's trying to get their eyes focused on, it will always be. As God is shaking our world, may we listen. May we hear, may we obey. May we receive grace day by day to serve him with reverence and godly fear. Why? For our God is a consuming fire. Many Christians have a very limited view of God. They see him as the God of grace that he is. They see him as the God of, of love and he is. But he's also a consuming fire. What is that? He's a God who judges sin and all who reject him. That's just part of who he is and what he is doing. He is not just a God who meets our needs and ignores our sin or minimizes our sin, as some might suggest by the way they teach or even live their Christian lives. He's also a consuming fire. I think during those three days at Mount Sinai, nobody questioned the power, the majesty, and the judgment of God. I don't think anybody slept. I, I just don't think, well, hey, well, there's some clouds that are rolling in. Check those clouds. Never seen clouds like, hey, the, the earth is starting to shake. You're not sleeping through that. You're just, you're just not sleeping through that. And then all of a sudden, just bolts of lightning light up, and that, that's your light for the day. But behind that is this echoing thunder that's just like, just, you're not sleeping through that. Then the voice of Moses screaming out, ah! it, it's somehow, you know, it's, it's echoing through the camp. Moses is yelling out to God, yeah, but I can't hear him over the trumpets. Where are the trumpets coming from? I don't know, it's like angels are all around. Just, you're not sleeping through this. You're not. Then, then God speaks. You, didn't, you weren't like, I, I'll, get, I'll, get, I'll, I'll listen to that podcast later. No, you are wide awake. Hear me when I say this. They were wide awake in the presence of God. No sleepy saints. No sleepy saints. No 
I don't think there was anything around them that would have distracted them from the presence of God when they were in the presence of God. I don't think they were like, I wonder, honey, did you... They weren't thinking about their home. They weren't thinking about anything. They were like fixated on him. And that's still who he is. You see, the God of Mount Zion is the God of Sinai. There's a balance. But if that's all you were going to benefit from was the God and who he was as the God of the Old Covenant, you just need to understand the limitations that come with that. And if you reject God outright, you you will face the God of Mount Zion, the God of judgment. But he sent his son. The God of Mount Zion sent his son. The God of Mount Sinai sent his son. And his son decided at 33 and a half years that he would descend up Mount Zion and he would willfully give his life and be sacrificed for our sins. He would purchase us. He would adopt us. He would make us his own. He would forgive us. He would write our name down in heaven. He would say, Father, Lance, this young kid, whenever that was, probably five or six years old, just he gave, he gave his life to me. And now he's an heir of the family. He's, he's no longer subject to the wrath of you, Father, in John chapter 1. But, but now he's been grafted in and adopted. He is a child of yours. And Lance now becomes an heir of yours. He's a joint heir. Everything that is mine from you is his. And you could put your name in that same picture, that, that reality, that sequence of events that happens in the life of an individual when they put their faith in Jesus Christ. Put your name there. You're a child of God. How foolish it would be to, to, to leave him, to walk away from him. We must run to him. Keep looking to Jesus. Keep receiving his enabling grace and serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Yesterday, Hope Dominguez lived many, many years as a Christian and she started out with me in, in part of a four-square church. And, and then as, as we got a little bit older and all of us youth group, we, we went to colleges and careers and all of that. We, we started going to different churches. She would end up at Calvary Downey with her husband Frank and her two boys. And I did some of the Calvary hopping around as well. Did some time at Calvary Downey. And, <clears throat> and over time, this one woman in the various churches that she, she went to, she, she left a very consistent perception in the eyes of all of the people from all of these churches. He said, how do you know that? Because that's what we saw, that's what we heard yesterday. Couldn't deny it. And, and what was just, just so cool was, you know, how many of you guys know that because we are dysfunctional, as, okay, anybody, you can't disagree with me on this one, okay, in your fallen state, you've been redeemed, okay, but 
you still sin. I still sin. We still do sin for time. Amen? Can I just have an amen? amen? Okay, just make sure you're agreeing with that part of it. Now I've set you up. That is called dysfunction, okay, in that sense. And because you are dysfunctional and I am dysfunctional, we, in, in a unique way, when we get married, even as Christians, it's somewhat of a still a dysfunctional marriage. Can you guys agree with that? Okay. Any perfect marriages here? Okay, no. For you online, they, no one raised their hand. At least no husbands. <laughs> so when, when, we, when we have kids, we become, we're still a little bit dysfunctional. Would you guys agree? Okay. So when, when, when we gather, we make up a dysfunctional family called Calvary La Habra. And I'm a dysfunctional pastor in that sense. But God works within that dysfunction. There are no perfect churches. We have our relational issues. We have some people in the body of Christ. They don't talk to others in the body of Christ. I'm not going to forgive you because of something. I can't remember what happened, but you know what? I'm still not going to forgive you. I'm going to mad dog you. I'm going to go to a bigger church because in a bigger church, you know, I, I'm not going to see you there anymore. All that kind of stuff. But then this whole coming to Mount Zion, it, it really kind of, it changes. It's, it, it brings us to a, a different well, a well of grace, a well of forgiveness, a well of love. And I watched yesterday... The body of Christ from different churches and different backgrounds and different, a lot of dysfunction. Listen to me. Function. I watch God's grace just pour over all kinds of weird stuff and just, just sin stuff and stuff that happens in the body of Christ. And I watch love just kind of mold everyone together. And I mean, it's like we were all singing kumbaya together around a campfire. But it was, it was the love was there. It was, it, was, it was just you could cut it with a knife. You've come to that. I've come to that. And, and, and because of that, we're, what our common ground is we're pursuing the same Savior that we now follow and love. And listen, he's like, we should serve. I, I was home and, and, you know, it was a full day for me on Saturdays. And I was just, and, and Francel sent me a, a picture I just want you to see, here's our parking lot. And it was later on at night, and below it it said, these are the young men, the young adults. When you, you challenge them on Wednesday night to reach out to the church, and if you just want to go deeper, just kind of meet us here on the property. I just threw that out to a bunch of young girls. Here's, here's, here's the parking lot full of young adults who said yes. And it, it picked me up. It warmed my heart. It affirmed this scripture. It made me want to preach this with passion and not stop at 934 when I'm supposed to stop at 930. You follow me? I'm excited about this. You should be excited about this. That's Mount Zion on display. It's the new covenant being lived out. It's a picture of young men running to Jesus and saying, what do you want? I'll serve you. And if you weren't here on Wednesday night, we closed up Ecclesiastes. The, 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 last, the, the last book in Ecclesiastes just gets, speaks right to the heart of youth. 
And if you, I challenge all of us, because then it speaks to us older people about the reality of death. So that's, it's not an uplifting part of the chapter, but it's something we should be considering. But to the youth, if you know anyone who's young and, and they just need some direction, just go there. Send them that link. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for an opportunity to just draw near to you and, and your son. For any here, those online as well that have never accepted you, if that's, that's you, you say, Lance, just pray for me right now. Lead me in a prayer. I, I want to accept Jesus. Would you follow me but say these words to him? He's listening. Say, Father, I'm a, I'm a sinner. Your, your, your Bible, your word tells me so, and I agree with that. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So I'm coming to you as a sinner, knowing my sin separates me from you. But I want your gift of salvation. I want to be saved. And pray these words now to Jesus. Say, Jesus, I believe that you are God. I believe that you died on the cross for me. I believe three days later you rose from the dead for me. And I receive you. Just tell him that. I receive you into my life. Be, become my Savior right now. Save me. Forgive me. Wash me of my sin. Fill me with your spirit. Give me a new heart. Make me a new creation. Fill my life with your love. Love for you. Love for your word. Love for others. And if you've prayed that very simple prayer, but you meant it, in your way, keep talking to him and, and thank him. Lord, continue to do your work in our hearts and in this, your church. May we be all in. Thank you for Mount Zion and what you did in establishing the new covenant and the new life and the eternity that you've given us, Jesus. We love you. May we follow hard after you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Let's all stand.